I had a small cohort of children come up to me before the service this morning, and they had one request. They said, they said we can smell the food in the fellowship hall. Can you make the service really, really short today? And I told them I could not do that, but as a consolation, I would preach about a shipwreck. And they said, yes. So that's what we're going to do. We, it, providentially, it is exactly the passage we were already going to do. But uh, we have a bunch of little ones that are going to listen closer today because this is about a shipwreck, which is just by its very nature exciting. So would you please stand this morning as we read from God's word, as we read from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 44. It'll be a brisk 44 verses, though. Uh, Hear now from the word of God. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the, the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives." But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed across Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that we would run aground, in, uh, aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day, day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. 
Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the, ground, on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our God, would you open the eyes of our hearts this morning? Would you cause the scales to fall off where needed? Cause us to see the beauty and the good that you have for us, especially if we find ourselves in hard or painful or trying circumstances. Would you use your word to prepare us for the journeys that are ahead for each and every one of us in each and every one of our lives? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Believe it or not, we have been in the book of Acts for just over a year. And today's sermon will be the 45th sermon in our Acts series. I hope you find that unbelievable. I hope that you have been following and enjoying and savoring Acts so much that you can't believe it's been 45 sermons. But there may be a couple of you who say, oh, yes, I believe it's been 45 Uh, I hope not, though. Uh, But at this point, we are near the end of the book of Acts. We have two chapters left in the book of Acts. We are sliding into home plate at this point. Uh, 
But I think as we're doing that, it's very fair for us to ask the question at this point, what is home plate for the book of Acts? What does it look like? Where are we aiming for? Where is this book going? Where are we headed toward? Well, remember, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome under house arrest, waiting to have his appeal heard by Caesar. So so it sort of ends at this moment where Jesus really keeps the promise that he made at the beginning of the book, because in Acts chapter one, verse nine, he makes this statement. Jesus tells them what he's going to do by the end of the book. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the book is bookended with these two things. One is the promise that you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And then the book ends. It it is bookended with the keeping of that promise with Paul in chains at the end of the earth. And so the question is, you know, between the, the, the beginning of the book of Acts to the end of the book of Acts is about 20 to 30 years. The question is, how do we get there? What does it take to get us from the very beginning to where we're sliding into home plate in Rome? How does Paul get there? I mean, after all, the last chapter ended, Paul's still in Caesarea, which is practically Jerusalem as far as geography is concerned, very close by. How, uh, how, with two chapters left, how does God do it? How does he get him to Rome? How does he get Paul to the end of the earth? And the answer is today's passage. And today's passage really is the beginning of the end. It is the first step toward Rome. It's the first step really toward Jesus's promise at the beginning of this book. And this passage is tough. It's rough. It's full of adventure. It's full of excitement. It's full of danger. It's full of weariness. It's full of life-threatening storms. But the thing that I hope you see this morning is this. It is the storm that God uses to take Paul where he wants him. God gets Paul to Rome He gets where God wants him to be, but he doesn't do it on a luxury yacht. He he doesn't get him there on smooth, glassy seas that are clean and calm and restful and pleasant. No, he gets Paul to Rome as a prisoner on a ship bound, passing through stormy seas. That's the way he gets Paul to his destination. And one of the most precious realities of the Christian life is that it is truly in the darkest moments of our lives that God shows himself to be most faithful. And I I think that if I were to go around and one by one ask you, I think that most of you could testify that the darkest moments of your life have been the times when you most clearly felt the presence of God, where you saw the hand of God in your life. It is rarely in our moments of pleasure that we say, oh, I see God so clearly. It's usually in the stormy days, the sort of days where you can't see the sun. And in the midst of this challenge, in the midst of Paul's stormy experience here, notice this. Paul sees the character of his God and he sees the providence of his God. It is truly in the bleak times. The times where we feel overwhelmed that God becomes the most real to his suffering saints. And so God shows us these two truths this morning. He shows us his character 
and he shows Paul his providence, the character of God and the providence of God. First, we see the character of God in this passage, but I want you to see how. The passage begins with Paul. He's boarding a boat. He's leaving Caesarea. He has appealed to Caesar. We saw this last week, and so he is going to be taken to Caesar. He gets handed over to a fellow named Julius, along with other prisoners. Julius is a centurion. And they board a ship that's called the Adramitium. Not a name that that rolls off the tongue, really. And they move along the coast of Asia Minor. They're sort of sightseeing the shoreline as they're traveling. Um, I think of it as sort of when we used to travel back to Kansas more often, uh, we would travel through the backwoods. You know, we'd say, well, we need the most direct route. So we'd drive up through Arkansas, up through uh, the corner of Oklahoma and sort of wiggle our way up there. But we noticed a few things. One, there's no cell phone service, which in this day and age feels terrifying. I don't know how we did it before. Uh, There's no cell phone service. Sometimes you'll drive for 40 miles and not have a gas station. And you need to have a a McDonald's every five miles. And so we started just driving through Dallas and then up to Kansas. And that's sort of the equivalent of what they're doing here. They want to stay close to the shore. They want to be close to help if they need it. Uh, They have stops they have to make. So they're taking sort of the, the scenic route instead of the direct route. And so they're, uh, they're moving along, they switch ships, and then they are forced out into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And they go by the island of Crete. This is an island they've been to before. It's an island that they actually evangelize from one side of the island all the way to the other. But this time they're not evangelizing. This time they're just trying to stay alive. The, sh- the, the wind pushes them along the southern side of Crete, and they're fighting the wind all the way because these are sailboats. They, aren't, they don't have uh, internal combustion engines that are driving them. They don't get to go where they want to. They don't have a slave galley where they're rowing. Instead, they are at the mercy of God and his wind. So they come to this little village along the southern edge Uh, It must be a pleasant place. It's called Fair Havens. You can't have a place that's unpleasant called Fair Havens. But they get there and Paul gives advice to them. And I just point out that this is advice. Paul never says, thus saith the Lord. He is simply tapping into his own experience as as somebody who has done a lot of sailing in his days. And he says, if we leave here, we might die. And they ignore Paul. And the reason they ignore him is financial. The owner of the ship has a huge say in this. And the reality was in those days, the Roman government would pay you very generously if you could reach your destination and if you could do so quickly. They would get a huge bonus if they made it to Roman time. And so they press on. And so they arrive at Phoenix. And from there, they launch off to sea again. And they come near a tiny island called Cauda. And as they do this, they lose control of the ship. They can't guide it anymore. They can't control it. They are no longer at the helm of this ship. Rather, the wind is at the helm of the ship now. And now they only have to do whatever the storm causes them to do. They are very much adrift. It would be absolutely terrifying as a sailor to be in that position. And so the ship is adrift for days. There is, this is actually where they cover the most ground. If you were to look at a map... And you would actually see that at this point, uh, the ship flies 
across the Mediterranean Sea at an almost merciless speed. They're throwing cargo overboard. They're trying to find some way to gain control. Uh, The storm is so bad they don't see the sun during the day and they don't see the stars during the night. And it's at this point Paul tells them that precious thing that everybody loves to hear when they maybe made a bad call. I told you so. It just makes your heart sing. You just... I'm surprised they didn't pick Paul up and throw him overboard after he said that to them. But they they left him alone because he was right. He did tell them we should have taken it slow. He basically said, let's not be in a hurry. I don't want to die until my time comes, you know. And so he follows it up, though, with something else. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only from the ship. And then he tells them why they should not lose heart. He tells them why they should still take heart. He says says that he was visited by an angel and the angel made him a promise. He said, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This is actually the second time God has reassured Paul by telling him he's going to stand before Caesar. Uh, this, this recurring theme happens in the book of Acts where he wants him to know, I have a purpose for you. And if you die in this storm, my purpose for you won't be accomplished. And so you're going to survive this. And then Paul tells them, he says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God. In other words, I believe the promise that God spoke to me. And because I believe the promise that God spoke to me, I want you to know you should believe it too. He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. So in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this chaos, something absolutely precious happens. God shows himself to Paul and he shows his purpose to Paul and he gives him a promise. He says, you're going to live because I have something that I still have to do with you. These people are going to live. You're going to make it all the way to Rome. So God shows his character to Paul here. Look at this. First, he shows Paul that he is omniscient. He shows him that he knows everything. We were just talking in the communing members class this morning. What does it mean for God to be omniscient? And the answer is he knows everything. He even knows what is happening in the middle of a swirling storm. Have you ever looked at a a picture of a hurricane from space So sort of sometimes you'll see those photographs taken from the space station and they're looking down into that hurricane and you can't tell where this hurricane is. You can't make out any land masses. You can't see through the clouds. You can't see through the chaos. And yet, what do we see here? But God sees. God sees through the chaos. God sees through the storms. One of the most important reminders That I need to hear, especially when the pain and the terror has come upon me, is I need to remember that I may not know what is happening, but God does. God does. While we're waiting on the diagnosis, he already knows what the result's going to be. You know, we're, we're waiting to find out what has happened with our wayward child. And you know what? He already knows. We're waiting for that outcome or that letter or that email or that piece of news that's going to change our lives and that we've been losing sleep over and God isn't worried in the least bit. He knows exactly what's going on. 
How? Because just like Paul sees here and just like he's remind, we're reminded this morning, God knows everything. He's omniscient. The most surprising storms in our life are not news to the God of the universe. Nothing that ever happens to us just pops up on God's radar like he's surprised by it. He's never surprised by anything in our lives. The storms aren't accidents and they aren't unexpected to the one who knows. And look at this. Paul sees more of God's character in the passage because one major feature of God that he finds here is that God is merciful. See, he, he owes nothing to these other people on board this ship. But he still decides he's going to spare Paul and he's going to spare every person on board the ship. And if God wanted to, God could have let the ship be scuttled. He could have let everything be destroyed. The ship could have disintegrated. And if he wanted to, to rescue Paul, Paul could have been the sole survivor of the shipwreck. And you could, in your reasoning and thinking, have said, well, look, I could see how God would be glorified by that. He crushes these unjust soldiers at the same time. He lets Paul go free, showing that, well, Paul must be his man because everyone else died. And yet God doesn't do that. He doesn't decide Paul's going to be the sole survivor. Instead, in verse 24, he says, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And not only that, God could have just let the ship run aground in Malta. He didn't have to say a word after all. That's what happened. It did just happen. Why did he do it this way? Why did he speak to Paul at all? Why did he tell Paul what he was doing? Why didn't he just do it? Isn't it because he wants Paul to see and he wants the people on the ship to see that not only did this happen, but it was our God who did it. When he speaks before it happens, he's showing them this is my doing. God doesn't take credit for it after the fact. He lets them know beforehand, this is me. This is my work. He's showing them what he's like. He's showing them his character. And so I hope you see this. Just by speaking, God is showing mercy. Just by telling them what he's doing, he's showing himself. And when God shows himself to us, he's showing us mercy. Because he owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us to explain himself. He doesn't owe us to tell us what he's going to do. He doesn't owe us any sort of explanation about what he is like whatsoever. And yet he does it because it pleases him to be kind to us and to show us what he's like. Paul doesn't deserve to be saved. Neither does anybody on board that ship. And yet God says, I'm going to do it. Christian, your life may be fairly calm right now. If I were to ask you, if you have storms going on in your life, it's possible that you would say, no, things are going pretty well. I'm waiting for college to start up. My life is, is in neutral right now, and it's fantastic. Maybe that's what you would say. Maybe your health is great. Maybe your finances are okay. Maybe you wake up each morning and sleep well at night and you don't have too many burdens, I want you to know this. God is using this passage to show you that you will need to know the character of your God because the winds will pick up. That means that right now is the time for you to be fortified so that when the winds do blow, you will be ready. 
That could be you. You could be, you could say, my life is smooth sailing right now. But here, I want you to know this too. If I were to ask you what's going on in your life, you might actually say, my life is in chaos right now. The winds are blowing right now. I am in a storm right now as we speak. And I want you to know this text speaks to you too because the text reminds you what you think about God and what you believe about God while you're in the storm and while the trouble is swirling around you. It matters right now. This revelation sustains Paul. And when Paul says, I believe it, he's giving God glory. He's giving God glory. And he calls us to do the same in whatever kind of storms we're going through. See, we are meant to be carried and sustained by the character of God in those moments. And that's why God gives Paul the word that he does here. He needs to know his God. The second thing Paul sees and experiences is the providence of God. Think about this. Paul has shared God's promise that they'll be spared. He's told them, we're going to make it. But they aren't out of the woods yet because, see, the sailors begin to fear that they're going to hit the rocks. So they start to get desperate. They start to get frightened. Paul tells them they want to run away. Some of them actually pretend, hey, we're going to work on the boat over here. And what they're really doing is they're trying to escape in the life raft. And Paul tells them, you have to stay on the boat. You have to get something to eat. You have to keep your strength up. You have to keep your morale because you're going to need it. Finally, after much work, they do, in fact, run the ship aground. Everyone survives. And in this passage, we see the providence of God because, see, the providence of God is more than just his control over nature. It's his continual and constant provision for whatever we need. Um, God's providence doesn't just uh, pertain to big things. It pertains to little things. Um, When you step outside and you see a leaf Flutter by. That's by the providence of God. When you go to the bathroom and you turn the handle on the sink and water comes out, there are physical laws in the universe that govern that, but ultimately it's happening because of the providence of God. When you breathe and air goes into your lungs and your heart circulates the oxygen throughout your body and you're able to keep living because you're breathing, that is happening by the providence of God. But the providence of God governs small things and it also governs big things, even shipwrecks with 267 people on board. And we know this in part because Paul testifies to it. Because in the last passage, we saw that God knows that he's going to spare everyone. The only way that he can guarantee that every person on that ship is going to make it is because of his control, because of his sovereignty, because of his providence. But you see, we learn something else as well. God's providence doesn't just involve him acting, but it involves the use of means. It involves you and me, in other words. Um, Just providentially, God doesn't just ordain that the ship runs aground. What does he ordain? He ordains that it runs aground because of the wind blowing on the sails and because of the sailors throwing things overboard and because they throw down the anchor to slow the boat before it gets there. So all of these things happen in order to make his plan take place. 
We have to have a healthy understanding of God's providence. Because if you have an unhealthy view of God's providence, then you'll say, well, God has ordained it to happen, so it doesn't matter what we do. And if Paul had had that view, he could have just sat on the deck and watched everybody work until all of this stuff happened. But you see, Paul has a healthy understanding of the providence of God. God doesn't just provide, but he provides through us and through our actions. Let me give you an example. The the Bible says we should pray for hungry people. Uh, Massive numbers of people all over the world right now are hungry. And they can't just put food in their mouths if they want to at any moment. And James tells us, he says, if you see a hungry person and you don't do something to put food in his stomach, if you just say, I'm going to pray for you, then we forget God. And we forget that God uses means to provide for people. So, you know, maybe you could have been the means of God answering that person's prayer or your own prayer to care for the hungry. Um, We did that a few months ago. We um, purchased and assembled meals for Rise Against Hunger. We didn't just pray for hungry people, but we actually took action to be God's means of provision. And we're supposed to do that in our daily lives as well. So I guess the point is, if, if our belief in the providence and sovereignty of God causes us to sit still and wait for God to do something, then it means that we have an unhealthy understanding of the providence and sovereignty of God. We have forgotten that he uses means to accomplish his will. Truly understanding the providence of God moves us to act. It doesn't paralyze us. It tells us that when we act, God is going to do something for his own glory with that action. He's going to use it to promote his own glory. And we also see something else here that God in his providence has put Paul in this place. God has put him here. And what that means is that we can derive one thing. The providence of God does not always mean ease for us. Sometimes the providence of God actually means that we get out of our element in an uncomfortable place. And yet we also know we are right where he wanted us to be. And if you're not there now, if you are not in that discomforted place where you are out of your element and you feel like you don't belong, I want you to know you certainly will be. Nobody makes it through life without suffering, without difficulty, without pain. And you see, we have to get this out of our heads, this idea that when the situation works in our favor, that means God is for us. And when the situation doesn't work out for us, that it means God isn't anymore. God was just as much there for Paul here as he was on the other days when it was smooth sailing and the ship didn't wreck. God is equally with Paul in both situations. And whether you're in a storm or whether you're on the easy seas, God is with you just as much in both situations. I want you to notice one more thing. God has power over the storm. He has power over the wind. He has power over the waves. We know that God could stop all of this right now. Uh, In Scripture, God is constantly showing us he has control over storms. Think about what happens to Jonah. As soon as Jonah is thrown into the sea, what happens? The sea becomes calm and still. And actually, the people on the boat are terrified. Or think about Jesus as he stood on 
the, on the Sea of Galilee. And he said, peace be still. And the storm was stopped. Think of Psalm 107, 29. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Stopping this storm is not outside the skill set of Almighty God. He is perfectly capable of stopping this storm at any moment if he wanted to. And yet, God doesn't do that here. He, He has the power to stop it and he doesn't stop it. God deals with this situation in his ordinary providence through the actions of Paul, through the actions of the sailors, and he doesn't miraculously stop the danger. Why would he do that? Well, the one answer is because he's God, and that's how he wanted to do it. But maybe there's some level here where God really wants all of us to see. It is the storm that God uses to take Paul where he wants him to be. I was injured on the job back in 2014. I used to move furniture, uh, which I, I always joke and you've heard me joke before. That's what you do when you have a philosophy degree. You move furniture. And I, I'm actually a very busy-minded person. I like to have tasks in front of me, and it was absolutely maddening. I was injured on the job. I couldn't go back to work for six months. And so for six months, I sat in my house and healed and recovered, and I couldn't go back to moving furniture until I got 100%. And, you know, at the, at the time, I wondered to myself, why would God do this? Is he, he's just giving me a forced vacation, And what God actually was doing during that time, and I've said this before, you can't always tell what God is doing, but I'm able to tell. I'm able to look back. God used that six months of time to prepare me to go to seminary. He let me spend six months reading, uh, just getting ready for what I was going to be doing in seminary, which is a lot of not moving furniture for the most part. And at the end of that six-month period, I had enough workers' compensation uh, to pay for a U-Haul and to pay for my first month's rent when I came down here to seminary. Um, We were living paycheck to paycheck before that, and there was no other way we ever saw that we could do that. And God used my foot injury to bring me here. He was using all of that. He was using that storm in my life to accomplish something and bring me to the place he wanted me to be. He could have just had a faraway relative die and put that money in my account or something like that. And yet he didn't do it that way. He used an injury to do that. It's the storm that God uses to take Paul where he wants him. And maybe you've got something going on in your life and you're wondering, why, Lord, why don't you just remove the cancer? Why do I have to go to these treatments? Why do I have to put this poison in my body? Why don't you just heal me? You say, why, Lord? Why don't you just give me that job? Give me that raise that I need? Don't you know that I'm struggling? Or maybe you say, why, Lord? Why? You know I'm brokenhearted. Why don't you just restore me right now? God doesn't give Paul a miracle. And he doesn't give Paul an escape from the suffering. What he does do is he gives him a promise. He says, this is exactly where I intend you to be. And he gives us a promise too this morning. A promise you can take with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise that you need. 
when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's something you need. It isn't a miracle, but it's better because it's what you really need right now. And you may need it a thousand times more before you reach the end of your journey. Maybe you need it 10,000 more times. We aren't promised a suffering-free life. The journey we're on is not meant to be easy seas. We aren't promised comfort in Scripture, but we are promised that God's promises will hold even when the circumstances, even when the storms seem so out of control. The reality is we are right where he wants us. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our greatest need is not to see a miracle, the way we think of miracles. Our greatest need is not for us to have some sort of angelic vision like you gave to Paul. Our greatest need, O oh God, is to be sustained and to be faithful because the greatest temptations we face are often to disbelieve your promises. Would you feed us with your word? Would you protect us through your promises today? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.